Well, good morning, everybody. As you might have guessed, we are going to be in Psalm 51 this morning. As Lee sang, as Lauren read, so go ahead, open your Bibles to Psalm 51, park it there. And we also have a bonus in your bulletin. It's printed out in your bulletin as well. So you literally can't miss it today. Now, this morning, we've got a super fluffy and light and happy topic to discuss. Sin. Now, Psalm 51 is written by King David. It's actually one of the most prolific passages in all of Scripture about sin. Now, there's a lot of different opinions on sin. And the church sometimes even dances around it because we don't want to offend anybody. Some say the idea of sin is outdated. Uh, It's old-fashioned, that there is no such thing. Uh, But a lot of modern people are actually getting woke to sin. Morality and right and wrong is kind of encouraging because I kind of, it seems like it's making a kind of a comeback. I mean, who would have guessed that Hollywood, of all places, uh, would start being concerned about the dignity uh, and how women are treated, right? Dignity and respect. Me too. You can laugh at that, okay? But you know, uh, sometimes God's people even have a blind spot when it comes uh, to sin. Like it's not a problem for us anymore. Like we don't have to worry about it. And that can be dangerous. And David is a great example of that. He writes his poem. It's after he's had uh, an affair. And the weight of it is on him. You guys probably remember Bathsheba from 2 Samuel. Uh, David is hanging out on his palace rooftop. He's in uh, the infinity pool there, uh, looking across all of Jerusalem. And he sees Bathsheba. And he's like, oh, yeah. And, you know, he's the king. So he makes it happen. And you've got to love the Bible, though, because only the Bible would make one of its greatest heroes Uh, Somebody who commits uh, adultery with his best friend's wife, gets her pregnant, and then has the guy killed. That's how you know the Bible is true. Who would ever leave with that? Nobody. But, you know, even though David blows up his life, uh, in the end, the way he deals with it is actually a success story. So this morning, we're going to look at three attributes of David that that allow us to crush sin rather than having it crush us. So there's three things that David knows. He knows sin, he knows himself, and he knows the Savior. Okay, so this morning, it's sin, self, and Savior. First of all, we have got to understand sin. And these first two verses in Psalm 51 are incredible. I'm just going to read the first two here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, we're going to focus on three words in these first two verses here. I mean, you can write a warehouse full of books on these first two verses. So we're going to look at sin, inequity, and transgressions. We're going to take them out of order, but they kind of build where we're going to look at them, okay? So first up, sin. 
sin. It's the act. It's the fault of conduct. It's failing specifically at a standard set by God. Pretty straightforward, right? Now, secondly, we're going to look at iniquity. And that takes us deeper, closer to the deep blue water off the beach there. We're getting into deep water now. Iniquity, it's a fault of character deep within us. And our passage today tells us where it comes from. It comes deep within us. We've had it since birth. It's the iniquity, the fault of character, that actually leads to sin. So it's the fault of character that leads to the fault of conduct. It's that deep character fault that causes us to do the act. And lastly, and this one just floors me, transgression. This really brings it home. Because transgression means willful rebellion against an authority. Like God. But it's willful. It's intentional. We willingly do it. So we have this deep fault of character. We have this iniquity. And we have the act that God says, hey, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. That's not holy. And on top of it all, we want to do it. We do it willingly. Now, when we think of sin, we always kind of try and compress it down to that first word, sin, the act, lying, cheating, stealing. But a lady named Barbara Taylor, about 20 years ago, she wrote a book about sin. And here's a quote that, I, that, I, that caught my eye. Contrary to the legal model, the essence of sin is not primarily the violation of laws, but a wrecked relationship with God. And David builds his definition of sin from here. In verse 4, he says, against you, I have sinned. So he's wrecked the relationship. He has separated himself from God. And Pastor David, a couple weeks ago, did a great job of talking about the greatest commandment. Remember, this guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, out of all these rules and regulations and laws and ways we're supposed to be holy and Ten Commandments, what's the most important one? And Jesus says, hey, the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Right? Now, if we really did love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, whatever that sin gives us, we wouldn't want it. We wouldn't even think about it because we love God. Why would we want to do that? We wouldn't do it. So when David commits adultery, what he's really saying to God is, I want Bathsheba more than you. I want the feeling that Bathsheba gives me more than I want you. So basically, before David commits physical adultery, he's committed spiritual adultery. And it's the same for every sin. You could actually write like a calculus equation to it. Maybe algebra is actually simpler. Solve for X. If X is the sin, whatever X is, then I love X. I love X more than God, or whatever X gets me more than God. So, you know, whatever slander gets me, that boost in reputation, I have to have that boost in reputation more than God. Whatever gossip gets me, or adultery, or whatever the sin is, you can plug that in. You want what that sin gives you more than God at that moment. One of my favorite TV shows is on the History Channel. It's called Vikings. Yeah. Now, this season, there's a character, Bishop Hegman. 
He's this bishop, okay? So he has vows, right, that he can't break, but he's in love with this pagan Viking queen, Largatha. He just can't get her out of his mind. And, you know, pagan, I mean, uh, Largatha, she's a pagan, but she knows a little bit about Christianity because she's watched Hegman. And every time Hegman comes to her, she says, you wish to sin? And you know what she's asking. Can you imagine how convicting that must have been to Hegman? Not convicting enough, obviously. So eventually, uh, she just can't reconcile. She's like, why, does he, why do you keep coming to me? And she, she's like, I don't understand. She goes, do you not fear your God? And Hegman looks at her and goes, I fear the Lord, but in this moment, I desire you more. And I'm like, that is it. I jumped up out of my easy chair, ran over my phone, and started typing. <laughs> I can use that. Now, eventually, Hegman renounces her, and she really gets upset, and she's jealous about it because she, she wants to be with him. Uh, and she says to Hegman, she goes, I think you've always loved your God more than me. You know, one of the most incredible things about our God is that he wants us, even though most of the time we don't want him. So if we know sin, if we know, know even these basics of it, why do we still struggle? Why aren't we doing better? Uh, why aren't we any better off? Why do we keep falling for the same things, the same sins? Because it's not good enough just to know sin. We have to know ourselves. And that's our second point, know self, okay? I'm going to read from verse 3 to 6 here. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now, it doesn't say in the Bible how long it was between when uh, David was carrying on his affair and when it, it really struck him in the heart, but it wasn't overnight. And he's finally starting to own his sins now. He's totally owning it. He's beginning to know himself, his depravity, what he was really doing, what he's capable of. He's starting to get self-awareness. Now, we use that term sometimes. You know, he just has a lack of self-awareness. What are we really saying about that person? So David's becoming self-aware, but I want to zoom in on the second half of verse 4 right now. He says God is justified when he judges him. Know what that means? That means that David is done making excuses. He's totally owning it. He knows he's wrong because before he was trying to self-justify. Self-justification. I did it, you know, I did it because my needs weren't being met by my spouse. Or I did it for my reputation. You know, how, I'm the king of Israel. How, what if somebody hears this about me? So I scheme, I lie, and I kill. Our hearts are actually engines of self-justification. We're always churning self-justification out. We're always running this self-justification subroutine. And David cuts through all of that. He says, you 
are justified when you judge. But there's self-justification, but we're also in what's known as the age of authenticity. We want to be authentic, don't we? We're always told, follow your heart. Do whatever feels right. It's not wrong if it's in your heart. Go for it. You be you. Be yourself. Be your authentic self. Whatever that is, is fine. There's two competing personas here. And the authentic you, though, it's interesting because back in 2016, there was a great little piece in the New York Times. It was titled, Unless you're Oprah, be yourself is terrible advice. Listen to what the author wrote. A decade ago, the author A.J. Jacobs spent a few weeks trying to be totally authentic. He announced to an editor that he would try to sleep with her if he were single. And he informed his nanny that he would like to go on a date with her if his wife left him. He informed a friend's five-year-old daughter that the beetle in her hands was not napping, but dead. He told his in-laws that their conversations were boring. You can imagine how that experiment worked out. But what happens when self-justifying you, everything's okay, you, I'm fine, I don't have sin problems, meets age of authenticity, you, being yourself, you, okay? Bad, bad things, okay? Literally, the fight is on. Because those two personas cannot exist in the same space. Everything's okay, you, is deeply offended by, when he, by authentic you. If you get faced with that, in those moments, the fight is on. They can't be together. It's like, it's like a paradox. It's like a time paradox. If two items come together in 12 monkeys, they're going to blow up. Okay? They can't be in the same space at the same time. It's a chemical reaction. Two things are going to happen. We're going to hurt ourselves, and we're going to hurt others. First of all, we're going to hurt ourselves. We're going to handle sin the wrong way. We're going to handle it with shame. We're going to handle it with anxiety and depression, or even pride, because we can fool ourselves, so we're prideful. There's nothing worse than approaching sin, than trying to tackle sin in your life without Christ, because it always results in us either being mopey with our heads down, are prideful jerks. There's really no in-between. So we're going to hurt ourselves and we're going to hurt others. Here's how we hurt others. We're going to be cutting, always cutting people down, because we have to level. It's a leveling behavior. We have to bring people down to our level. We have to bring ourselves up above them because I am better than they are. I'm self-justifying. So we're going to be cutting. We're going to be super sensitive. We're going to be touchy. Because we're going to perceive everything as a slight. Because the world we've constructed for us is fragile. We can't take criticism. So cutting, sensitive, and lastly, we're going to be cruel. We're going to be impatient and dismissive of other people and their problems. Because if we've convinced ourselves that we don't sin, and we don't have a sin problem, then why can't everybody else be as good as we are? Cutting, sensitive, and cruel. You know, if we don't admit that we're bigger sinners than we ever knew, uh, and, and let me just say that we spend the first 20 years of our lives being told how great we are, okay? <laughs> right? 
That's hard to overcome. Then we spend the next 20 or 30 years realizing that we're not all that. I'm 50 years old. I've never been a bigger sinner than I am right now. Should I have just said that to you guys as a pastor? (laughs) The sin has always been there, folks, but the older we get, it's almost a function of age, the more we realize it. But if we don't wrap our heads around it, sin is going to sneak up on us and crush us one day. Just like David, it crushed him. He said, the bones you have crushed. He wrote six psalms about it. And I encourage you to to, to read those six psalms. It went on for a long time, and he's being crushed by it. He was the head. He was the king of God's people. He was the senior pastor of history's biggest megachurch. Okay? He had all his religious duties as king, going into the temple, taking care of business. And he was able to fool himself. And you know what happened? It surprised him, and then it crushed him. David would never have imagined it would be him. If you would have told David, hey, you know what, you're going to be having an adulterous affair in a couple years or whatever, that would never happen to me. Another function of that is that we can't handle the truth either. That fight or flight is on. Because you guys remember how Nathan tunes up David, how David comes to the realization of his sin, right? If Nathan had come to David and said, hey, you need to stop having that adulterous affair with Bathsheba, you need to stop sleeping with her, okay? David would have been cruel. He would have been sensitive, touchy. He might have had Nathan executed. He would have denied it. He would have sent him away. Ah, I guess, ah, there's a reason behind it. Let me explain that to you. So Nathan <laughs> hits him obliquely. He hits him a glancing blow. He wants David to make the connection himself. You've got to make the connection yourself. So here's what Nathan does. He says, hey, David, King David, I need to tell you about some guy. I want to tell you about a rich guy who took this poor man's last little ewe lamb. It's all he had in the world. And David's like, that dirty scoundrel. He should be executed immediately. Bring him to me. How could he do that? And Nathan says, you are the man. And then it hits him. Nathan's like, you had to have the only precious thing in Uriah's life. You took it away from him, his beautiful wife. And it hits David right in the mouth. Surprise! And it crushes him. Now, we don't have Nathan, a prophet of the word, but guess what we have? The word. You've got to let God's word hit you like that. But you're going to have to spend time in your favorite chair by the window thinking about it. You'd be reading God's word. And not reading it and getting up and going about your business. Read it and let it hit you. Not reading it in a way where you're getting the Hebrew and Greek cognates and charting out sentences and all that kind of stuff. Just read it and let it hit you. You'd be meditating on it. You've always got to be writing Jesus into your life. How does this apply to me? How am I living my life today where this word applies to me? You you can't just not think of Jesus. If the last time you thought of Jesus uh, was when you got saved at VBS or, you know, at Young Life Camp when you were 16, that's not enough. You've always got to be reading Jesus into your life today because the whole scripture is about Jesus. It's all about him. You need to put it on your heart. 
because we've built an elaborate world, this elaborate identity for ourselves. With this protection, they would never, they'd never find us. So the Holy Spirit is going to have to come in and shake you once in a while. Back when I was a U.S. Marshal uh, in the 90s uh, down in Miami, uh, you know, it was like the drug wars. It was like Miami Vice. So picture me with like, a, you know, a mullet and a, and a linen sport coat, right? <laughs> but there was this guy who'd been, uh, been running, you know, huge amounts of cocaine. Uh, and DEA caught up with him, like they always do, because everybody talks. Uh, and he went to court, and he gets out on bond uh, and disappears. So what do the marshals do? We find him, right? So 14 years later, 14 years later, I found him walking out his front door in Hollywood, Florida, going to work. Now, he had built a double life. It was a whole new identity. He had a new name, a new family, a real job. He was on Neighborhood Watch. He was president of the HOA. And his neighbor comes out when we grab him, okay? And he thinks he's being kidnapped. Because back in those days, we hadn't militarized the police yet. So it was just me and my partner. We walked up and said, hey, man, it's time to go. <laughs> so his neighbor's like, I'm going to call the police. I get my badge on my head. I go, dude, I am the police. <laughs> so I get him in the back of my car. And, you know, it's, always, it's a big deal when you deprive somebody of their freedom, okay? You don't take it lightly. I'm a little nervous because I get this grainy 20-year-old black and white photo. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh, please let this be him, because he's sticking by his story. That's not me. I'm so-and-so. I'm this, I'm this new guy, okay? So you know what? I yelled at him a little bit, okay? I had to shake him up. Not physically, okay? Now, I would find out. I would fingerprint him, and we would find out, but that would be a real pain in the butt. I want him to confess right there. So I yell at him a little bit, and you know what he says to me? Marshall. I said, you were the man. He goes, Marshall. It's me. Just like that. I couldn't believe he confessed. <laughs> and then you know what else he says? Thank you. I'm tired. I'm tired of running, of being somebody that I'm not. And a lot of fugitives said that to me. And it shocked me the first few times. But it's a lot of work living a double life. And that double life is in all of us. But you've got to admit it first. You've got to humble yourself to admit it, okay? You've got to say, that's me. And it's humbling. If you don't need to, listen to what 18th century theologian William Law wrote. You can have no greater sign of confirmed pride than when you think you are humble enough. The minute you think you're humble, it's over, okay? The minute you attribute yourself to be a humble person, you just identified your pride. Because it's only in those little moments of broken humbleness that Christ turns around and he lifts you right up and exalts you. Humbled, yet exalted. You have been forgiven because he took the cross for you. Those are two words, humble and exalted, that you don't think go together. They're the only way the gospel ever works. You can't have one without the other. 
John Newton in old age wrote this. He wrote, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. You know what? If you're not really a sinner, if you're just a little tiny little bit of a sinner, you don't need a great Savior. You're not going to experience Jesus like that. You don't need a great, a great Savior if you're not a great sinner. And that brings us to our last point tonight, or this morning. We didn't know our Savior. No sin, know yourself, know your Savior. So David knows his sin, right? Some of those first two verses, the greatest theological verses on sin in, in the Bible, I love it. He knows sin. He knows himself, okay? He's come to grips with that. And how much sin is still a part of him. And listen to what he says in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. In David's time, there was no sacrifice for what he had done. The penalty for adultery and murder was death. So he says, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was the branch they used to apply the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus when they lived in Egypt, so the angel of death would pass over them. And the hyssop branch was also used in the temple sacrifice ceremonies. So what David is really saying is, I know of no sacrifice, God. I don't know how you're going to do it, how you're going to forgive me, how you're going to make me clean. He doesn't know it yet but he's looking forward to another hyssop branch. A branch that would grow forward and backward into all the cracks and crevices of time and space. And the Bible calls him the branch of David. What's his name? Jesus. That branch, that branch, the blood of that lamb is sprinkled on the doorposts of our heart to make us clean, no longer self-justified, but justified by Christ. We're all either three things. We're either self-justifying, God is justified in judging us, and we don't want that, okay? Or we're justified by Christ. In verse 1 and 2, David says, blot out, cleanse, Wash away my sin. It's not the brawny, quicker, picker-upper version, okay? He's not saying, hey, clean up my mess, clean up the consequences. All these three words here, it's a sense of deeper cleaning. It's not windexing some external blemish. This deep cleaning is like uh, getting down into the very weave and the fabric of your heart, right down to the middle of it. Because David wants to be a better person. But he also knows through experience that you can't layer holiness over your life externally and be successful at it. Because he just tried that and he failed miserably. It's clunky. It's like trying to run Windows on a Mac, okay? You computer people, you've got to have parallels on your computer, uh, on your MacBook, then you've got to boot up uh, Windows uh, uh, separately. By the way, who want to use Windows anyway? Right? But you don't want the patch, okay? You don't want the virus program that comes with the computer that keeps giving you pop-up ads, okay? It's a pain. You want a whole new operating system. 
David knows there's nothing he can do to change his own heart, so he asks God to do it for him. Listen to what it says here in verse 10 to 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then he goes on in verse 17 to 19. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be on your altar. Offered on your altar. You know, David was a believer. He's asking to get the joy of his salvation back. So Christian, this passage is about you. We offer our broken and contrite heart, remembering what Christ did, how he was crushed for us. And it humbles us, okay? Because we couldn't deal with it by ourselves. We couldn't bear the weight of it crushing us. And then we remember that Christ has already dealt with it. He did. He dealt with it. He crushed the sin that was crushing us. His heel crushes the head of the serpent. And then we're exalted. We're soaring. We're lifted up. God still takes us back after the thousandth time. He loves us. He will never cast us aside. He'll never cast us from his presence. Humble but exalted. And David's blown it, right? But even though he's blown it, even though we've blown it, God can still use it. Because the branch is also a genealogical tree. Out of all the wives and sons that David had, where does Jesus come from? What does his 23andMe profile say? Jesus is a descendant of Bathsheba and Solomon. How about that? David says, after I've offered my broken and contrite heart, Then, God, you delight in the burnt offering. Israel didn't do the burnt offering to be accepted by God. They did it because they already were accepted. So when we place our broken hearts on the altar and fire comes down, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit, fire represents the Holy Spirit. There's fire of wrath and there's fire of love. And when the flames come down, Christ takes the flames of wrath for us. And guess what? The flames of divine love come down on our heart. And the Holy Spirit burns up our sin. It burns it up. Every time we do it, we offer our heart. It's in those moments that the sin gets burned off and your heart gets reshaped, creating a pure heart. And you, being you, become a whole new person. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Psalm 51, Lord, for the, the depth, the theology, Lord, uh, the heartfelt words of David, who knew himself, Lord. He, he learned to know himself. It was sin. It was himself, Lord. He knew that you were going to save him somehow, Lord. He didn't have Jesus in front of him, but we do. Lord, I pray if we've never, if there's somebody here who's never put their heart on the altar for the first time, Lord, who's never uh, been justified by Jesus, Lord, how Jesus, you died for our sin, Lord. If there's somebody here who's never, ever done that, Lord, I pray that today would be the day. And for those of us, Lord, uh, who haven't thought about you in a while, we've never, we're kind of in hiding, we're in the, we're okay mode, uh, I pray, Lord, that we would come to you and remember that we are justified in Christ, that we would apply uh, your word to our heart, Lord, and that the fire of you, Holy Spirit, will come down and change us into whole new people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.